we, we who live in Riyadh and in Saudi Arabia have a sense that we're in the midst of history being made in a way that really can't be matched very easily in any other country. I, I, I try to think, you know, I was a third culture kid and I lived in the Middle East as a boy. And so that's one reason I ended up there uh, because it was so different and it was so challenging and so stimulating academically and professionally. And um, uh, so when Saudi Arabia began to uh, really make its, uh, its mark after the big increase of oil prices in the 70s, I went to Jeddah in 78 for the first time. It was a happening place. It was exciting. It was, uh, you know, uh, it was really doing unique things that uh, were unmatched anywhere. And one of my best friends at the time was a French lawyer, and he uh, made his career in Japan. And I visited him there, and he's visited me in Saudi Arabia. And we uh, have often commented to each other, if, uh, if I hadn't been uh, called to Saudi Arabia, Japan would have offered some of those same cultural diversity uh, opportunities and this transformation that uh, is so sort of stimulating in the personal level to watch it and to watch identities being shaped under your very eyes and people sort of straddling the fence between the modern and the traditional. Well, this is kind of interesting to be a part of. This is the 966. This is the 966, the podcast and show that focuses on all things Saudi Arabia. Episode 19, Richard, Mumtaz. Um, Excellent. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Mr. Chris Johnson, who is managing attorney Johnson & Pump and chairman MECACC and KKR Saudi. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for honoring me with this opportunity. Don't forget to su subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. It's totally free. YouTube, Spotify, um, you name it, we're there. Um, we'll jump right into it today. Gentlemen, Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Okay, you know, we just did a topical with Kate Dorian, who is a non-resident fellow at uh, Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. And and I brought up this author, he's Michael Corrin, who writes for Quartz. He's an oil and energy specialist. And she said she had worked with him. But he, he wrote an interesting piece on the oil and gas industry. So basically, the oil and gas industry is on track to discover just 4.7 billions of oil equivalent, billion barrels of oil equivalent by the end of 2021. It's worst performance in 75 years, according to the research firm Reistad Energy. The ratio of proven reserves to production, a measure of how much extractable oil remains in the ground relative to annual production, is now at the lowest level since 2011. The International, Agency, International Energy Agency estimates global oil production declines by about 7% per year without investment in existing fields. However, since the mid-2010s, uh, U.S. oil and gas firms, firms have slashed capital expenditures as their stock prices plummeted. During the pandemic, firms cut exploration budgets even more to trim debt, pay dividends, and stem huge losses from a U.S. fracking boom that failed to generate profits. In 2020, industry investment dropped by $145 billion, leaving it at about half the level it was in 2014. It remained at a similar level into 2021. Most of the potential dollars for exploration and carbon-free energy technologies are going to shareholders. Oil and gas firms are paying, paying dividends roughly three times the average of S&P 500s. Quote, the comp according, to, according to Peter McNally at the financial research firm Third Bridge, the companies are being run to generate free cash more than growth. I thought this was really interesting in light of um, the Saudis and Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, the Minister of Energy's real concern that there's a, uh, the, the decline in energy investment is going to uh, 
it's going to come back to bite us. Yeah, um, you know, on the face of it, um, this is uh, bad news for the world economy. Um, and um, uh, the consensus is that there is a, um, a benefit in transitioning from carbon-based energy to alternatives. Um, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, ironically, they stand to benefit from these trends because they remain committed to being a big producer. This is their major um, uh, export and source of revenues. And uh, to the extent that their competitors in the U.S. and Europe are pulling back and really not for business or economic reasons, more for political and, uh, and um, uh, climate change reasons. Um, this leaves Saudi Arabia in the catbird seat. And even if there is at some point a peaking and a diminishment of uh, uh, carbon-based oil consumption in the world, it's, it's not gonna happen overnight. And so Saudi Arabia uh, would benefit in the short term from higher prices and in the long term from a rising market share. So uh, ironically, uh, whatever um, uh, uh, alarm signals this uh, uh, flashes for the um, uh, climate change uh, agenda, for Saudi Arabia, it's very good news. And uh, they uh, stand now um, surprisingly to, uh, uh, to, to reap a very rich harvest in terms of uh, uh, increased production and higher prices uh, uh, looking out for decades. And so I think Saudi Arabia um, uh, stands to enjoy a bigger slice of a smaller pie and, uh, and to benefit enormously in terms of their economic potential. And, you know, I think they don't have the same concerns that an ExxonMobil or a Chevron or uh, the other um, uh, multinationals have in terms of uh, um, a market uh, pushback and uh, activist shareholders trying to accelerate a transition to alternatives. Uh, um, and so uh, they could uh, expand their activities and their investments with their large uh, cash trove and their sovereign wealth fund to investments overseas. They could uh, uh, pick up some of these major assets that the major uh, oil companies are foregoing at this point. So, you know, there could be a, a array of silver lining for Saudi Arabia and all of these uh, um, developments that uh, Richard just summarized. I, uh, I'll jump in. Um, I think that's a, a, an apt term, the catbird seat. I think the Saudis definitely mm -hmm. feel like they're uh, in a really positive position in, in dealing with the climate change world and global energy conversion. And it's fascinating to watch them because if you look at, you know, fossil fuels, renewable energy, clean energy, they're on expansionary paths on all three of them. You know, they're expanding their, their, their crude oil production capacity by a million barrels per day, hopefully in place by 2027. They've just put in Jafura. They're just, you know, green-lighted Jafura natural gas, um, uh, expansion, which will grow their natural gas production, and that's not associated with great. Obviously, they're heavily into renewables in terms of trying to develop a solar and wind, significant solar and wind capacity, and they're, and they're moving, you know, strongly into hydrogen, both blue and, and green. So uh, they're, they're going full bore on every front for the reason you just say. This is, a, this is not necessarily a crisis for them. It's a crisis for the globe, but it, they, I think they see it very much as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And let me just add that uh, Brent is up 50% this year. And uh, so <laughs> there's also that. But yeah, um, very, very interesting. And we'll have that conversation with uh, Kate Dorian out um, on Monday of next week. Really good chat with her. She's an energy in industry expert. Um, 
And it, it just was a really good conversation. It was great to watch Richard and her wonk out on energy, um, which is it's just a great conversation. So, I'm regrettably, out. regrettably, she's the only one qualified to do so. But I was in, there, <laughs> I was in there pitching. Well, you had me fooled. <laughs> uh, great, great combo. So that'll be up on our YouTube channel and on uh, uh, as a podcast elsewhere as well. But yes, um, very interesting stuff going on. Um, uh, so my one big thing this week, um, which is not quite as serious and actually might not be anything at all, but, um, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, the PIF is reportedly close to acquiring another major European soccer team, um, Inter Milano, uh, the PIF is reported, reportedly looking to buy a controlling stake in Inter Milan for an estimated $1 billion. And of course, if it goes through, it would be the second major soccer club in the PIF portfolio, having recently closed its deal to buy Newcastle United. There's a lot going on here, but um, worth noting, the club uh, has some money problems. Uh, an IBT report this week said it was losing 15 million bucks a month, um, and it's had to sell off some of its star players recently. It's currently hold, owned by Suning Holdings Group Company Limited. Uh, it's a private Chinese company. It's actually the second largest private Chinese company, uh, so they are deep-pocketed. Um, but anyway, we'll see if this pans out. Uh, this would be kind of a big deal for the PIF. You know, they caught a lot of flack for their acquisition of Newcastle United, and they still are. If you just Google <laughs> Newcastle United Saudi, you'll see. Um, but this sort of came out of nowhere, at least for me. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, again, not a done deal yet, but this would be huge. I mean, Inter Milan is an international soccer brand. So this will be interesting to see if this actually goes through and and um, and see where the, the sports washing... Um, uh, critics will will land on this, but yeah. um, just interesting stuff. Um, never a dull moment with the PIF these days. <laughs> no. You know, this is not a unique uh, move in this sports area. Um, you see Saudi Arabia create working to create a new golf league uh, focused on Asia. And um, so, and this is, um, uh, I, I think there, it's not just an economic move. There's some messaging going on here that we are players on the world's stage in all the big, um, most uh, uh, fashionable uh, um, areas and, um, you know, including uh, prestigious soccer leagues and, uh, and, um, and golf. And, uh, and, and, you know, uh, I, I think what, what they're saying is that we're um, a major factor in a wide range of all of the leading sectors of uh, global interest. You know, we're members of the G20, we're owners of uh, major uh, sports clubs. Um, uh, you know, um, we're a factor to be reckoned with. I think it has great sort of uh, uh, media value in terms of uh, showing people that uh, we're not just about oil. We're present on many different fronts, and uh, you can expect to hear more about us. That, you know, that's an interesting take. We did a segment on sports washing, and we, we sort of broke it up into three aspects. One sort of, sort of you know, basic sports washing that has been practiced, you know, by countries for, for many decades. Uh, investment aspect, and then the, the Vision 2030. So, so you know, soccer and golf and, and, and uh, auto driving. A lot of these things tie back into what Saudi Arabia is trying to do at the local level in terms of participation and healthy activity and that sort of thing. So it is consistent with a larger picture in terms of Vision 2030. But, you know, this is a fourth, uh, fourth aspect that you raise where, you know, this is, uh, this is messaging, as you say. It's signaling that we're a player. Um, and, you know, Inter Milan, as you said, Lucian, is a name and it's been very successful. I mean, it, it, it's, it'll be interesting in this. I will say that 
you know, since Newcastle may be about to be relegated, maybe they just decided they need to get a better squad. They need to hire Ted Lasso to be the, the coach. <laughs> you should run all their franchises. <laughs> um, I think it is interesting that the sort of local um, angle to this. I mean, like Arab News has launched a podcast um, on Newcastle United since the deal closed. I mean, I think that a lot of Saudis, this is an anecdotal thing, but I think a lot of Saudis are now fans of Newcastle United because they know that their, um, you know, their, their leader, I mean, Crown Prince Mohammed is, you know, chair of the PIF. He made the move. I think there's like a patriotism fandom going on with um, Newcastle United and things like their relationship with the Italian Super League when they're playing games so that, that, and that was extended that'll end up being close to a 350 million dollar deal I mean they're bringing those games to Saudi again you know sort of the linkage between the the glitzy media and and the home participation you know sports ecosystem and it, it, it is fascinating it will be interesting if this goes through this Inter Milan one um Okay, uh, so let's move on here. First topic, uh, Saudiization, Nitikat. Um, it's a policy in Saudi Arabia aimed at increasing Saudi citizen participation in the workforce, especially the private sector workforce. Um, the policy date ba dates back to 2011, so it predates MBS and King Salman, but uh, over the last decade has grown into a series of policies aimed at reforming the country's labor market and lowering the kingdom's chronically high unemployment rates and also increasing female employment. Um, Nidicot uses a rating system, which classifies, classifies companies into four zones, platinum, green, yellow, and red, and requires employers in the private sector with over nine employees to hire a certain percentage of Saudi nationals, depending on the company's industry and the number of employees in the company. Uh, companies with less than 10 employees are exempt, but must hire one Saudi national. Uh, December 1st, the latest version of Nidicot, uh, came into effect and contains several new features and has a goal of creating 340,000 jobs by 2024, as well as simplifying the compliance rules for businesses. Uh, let's jump into this. This has been an ongoing policy. Um, it really impacts every sector and anyone looking to do business in Saudi Arabia is aware of this. Um, but let's jump into this. Um, Chris, talk a little bit about Nidicot and um, I mean, you're, you're local in Riyadh, not right now, but um, you are, you live in Riyadh and uh, just sort of how it impacts businesses and what's going on there. Um, well, first, uh, you know, you're correct. It's been there for quite a while, the Saudiization initiative, uh, and it uh, was uh, particularly pushed during a period um, when uh, the finances were not as good as they are right now. And uh, there was a sense that the um, concentration of employment in the public sector was unsustainable and that there, the private sector would have to play a bigger role in providing opportunities for Saudi youth. I think even now, 80 plus percent of all the employed um, uh, people in Riyadh work for the government. And um, uh, this had become a huge burden on the, um, on the budget. And so that I think was the initial push um, to uh, shift some of that responsibility to private business. And uh, so there is a big nationalist upsurge that's partly related to that, the um, commitment to continue to provide uh, meaningful employment opportunities for the young people coming up. And there has been a youth 
uh, surge. And, and, and um, you know, the uh, Ministry of Labor, now the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development, has a, um, a, a very unitary focus on um, sending the expats home and replacing them with Saudis. And, um, uh, you know, they get rated on their key performance indicators every year based on their success in doing that. And so the, uh, the leadership there has been very aggressive and... Um, um, and then on the other side of the coin, uh, part of Vision 2030 now uh, brings into the mix a commitment to substantially increase foreign investment and to increase it um, um, uh, by a factor of five as a percentage of GDP by 2030. And uh, uh, they're struggling to do this. They're not really on target for that at all. And one of the reasons is that companies to invest in Saudi Arabia want to be able to bring their own teams. And it's not that easy with this very rigid and arbitrary uh, quota system for employment um, that uh, doesn't give them a lot of flexibility. And then uh, Nidicot is not just uh, sort of a quota. Um, um, it's also um, an expectation that this certain senior positions are going to be filled by Saudis and in industries that never existed here before. So this creates enormous um, impediments to foreign companies who are comparing Saudi Arabia with Singapore or Vietnam or Philippines or other options uh, where these restrictions are not so rigid. Um, and so, um, you know, it's definitely very onerous. Um, and we do have a champion in Khaled Al-Fala at the Ministry of Investment who is working very hard to loosen some of these rules. And there is some uh, discussion that there may be um, a reform of Nidikat. So it's not not so arbitrary um, and this procrustean one size fits all and you either make your quota or we close down your uh, bank accounts. Um, I, there, there's some rumbling in the Twitter world that uh, there may be a shift away from that to be a little more accommodating to the needs of uh, foreign investors. You know, you look at uh, precedents for countries that succeeded in enlisting huge foreign investment on the scale of what Vision 2030 anticipates, you know, and uh, Singapore comes to mind and they went out and they talked to the target companies they wanted to bring in and said, what will it take to attract you to come here? And they uh, took it very seriously and they accommodated their concerns. And I think this is what Saudi Arabia needs to do. And I think Khaled Al-Fala is smart enough to realize that and powerful enough to have some influence. So I'm optimistic that the current very um, challenging aspects of Nidikat could be softened in the coming years. Fascinating. I think uh, Nidikat has, has been a tale as it's, un, as it's moved through, how it's evolved. It's, it's been a really fascinating thing to watch. I think just for listeners and viewers, I think it's it's important to remember that that Saudi Arabia actually has the third highest foreign-born immigrant population in the world. So you have the United States at 48.2 million, Russia 11.6 million, Saudi Arabia 10.8 million. This is in 2019, so it would have changed a little bit. Germany at 10.2. The point being is, is um, this is enormous expat foreign foreign labor population that has you know over the decades been a big part of Saudi Arabia's uh, economic setup and structure a lot of them uh, you know not necessarily uh, uh, highly skilled uh, workers but you know labor and that sort of thing but so you understand in terms of employment what the Saudis are getting to and what they want to try and do uh, but as you point out Chris it has significant um, uh, uneconomic aspects to it 
uh, that not only is uh, you know create disincentives in certain cases for Saudi companies, but obviously with for foreign companies wanting to come in. So it's a real challenge for Saudi Arabia, and I, I think it's interesting that you say that there may be another step in its evolution because it, it it seems to have really gone through a number of phases, being refined, expanded. As you said, it was a little draconian at some points. Maybe it, it still is, um, but it's it's something that they need to uh, you know they need to thread that needle where they're they're. Uh, providing uh, good opportunities for Saudis to be employed uh, while not doing anything that's an economic deterrent to investment and growth? Well, they need to find the right balance um, that both promotes a legitimate desire to provide opportunities for their own, and every country wants to do that. I know that's one of the two goals of our Federal Reserve, that they want to uh, address the uh, employment uh, issue because uh, that's what governments do. They look after their people um, um, in addition to controlling inflation. Um, and uh, so I think it's, it's, it's an appropriate goal to try to uh, um, find better opportunities in more areas for Saudi youth. Uh, the, um, the only uh, um, limiting factor being, are they really achieving it? You know, is that, uh, or are there better ways to do it? You know, and, and one sign that they really are asking the right questions was um, uh, there was a rule, I think it was imposed in 2003, something like that, that any um, local, locally owned uh, company had to have a Saudi as the chief executive. And um, there was a committee formed at the initiative of the Minister of Commerce um, and um, to study that issue. And they came back with a recommendation that they abandon that requirement. And I think that's smart. You know, um, uh, you look at uh, the Emirates and what makes um, um, Emirates Airlines and Etihad successful, well, they hire the best people at the top positions from around the world. And you look at uh, Silicon Valley, why is it why is it so successful and dynamic? Well, because they welcome talent from anywhere. And you look at the uh, CEOs of the biggest companies um, in high tech, and many of them are Indian or Chinese or you name it. And, um, you know, they're all welcomed and they all um, um, uh, are promoted according to their abilities. And uh, so to really be a dynamo in the economy and to be innovative, uh, uh, you need to be a little bit more like Silicon Valley. And the fact that um, you can now hire, um, you know, someone to run your airline or to run your um, uh, power company from, uh, you know, from uh, a global market of the best people everywhere. I think that's a sign that the, Saudi, the Saudis really are asking the right questions. And you know, I'm hoping there'll be more flexibility of this kind in, in other areas, and I expect there will be. Indeed. I think, uh, Lucian, the next, the next topic actually is a good follow-on uh, to, to what Chris just outlined for us on Nittekan. Yeah, I was just going to add um, that it's really interesting that this is, a, this is also sort of a cultural issue in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it, it's not just, um, you know, labor versus business, but it's like, I'm just thinking of like a shopkeeper that has three employees in a mall. Like if you have to hire one Saudi, it's not just that you have to hire one Saudi so that you fill the quota, but you have to find a Saudi that's willing to work in that shop. And I think that one of the reasons why this was sort of created was there was high unemployment among Saudis because Saudis didn't want to work jobs that they thought were beneath them or, you know, were just not, they were over, they felt overqualified for. Or and didn't so pay, didn't pay as well as the public sector. 
Exactly. And so that's that's why uh, you know, I sort of em- emphasize the private sector here, because the bloated public sector um, in Saudi Arabia was sort of the employer of, of I mean, I, I guess in some ways still is of, of many Saudis. And so there's ch- this is a really complex issue um, uh, culturally as well. So I just I just wanted to, I think, to throw I that think, in there. I think that's an excellent point. And Chris, I think everything Saudi Arabia does sort of has to be done in tandem with, you know, two, three, four, five, six other things. So, for example, we were complimenting this, you know, the fiscal responsibility of Saudi Arabia in its new budgets, projected budget for 22, 2022 and 2023. One aspect of that is they're going to keep level their spending on employees. So I think it's $135 billion, so it won't go up, which, as you know, Chris, you know, when, when, when there's flush energy revenues, typically in the past there's bonuses, you know, salary increases, which are, which are difficult because not only are they, they, they piling people into an inefficient sector, but these are sticky costs that, you know, it's hard to back down. But so, so apropos to what you're saying, Anita Khan, you know, you know, if you want to employ a Saudi, take your shopkeeper or anybody, but you want to play a Saudi, not only do you have to not you have to have to remove that very strong incentive to that where the public sector is much better than the private sector, you get paid more, you work less, you have to, uh, engage and invigorate the private sector to create jobs. You have to revamp your education system to create employable Saudis. You know, and on and on. And these are, any one of these is a huge undertaking. Saudi Arabia is trying to take a lot of them all at the same time and, and have them thread together in a way that, you know, results in a very dynamic, you know, employment environment for Saudis. Uh, so, your point is a good one, Lucian. You can't just bring up one part of it. It's a holistic, larger picture that they're trying to address on many different fronts. Yeah, and the the timeline reflects that. I mean, we're we're uh, now eleven years on, and so you know these things take a lot of time. You don't hear a lot of uh, about Nitakats over periods of time, and then you just get hit with a headline that's like eight hundred ninety thousand were you know deported because they you know for, for, under yeah. Nitakat guidelines. You're like, well, that's a that's a lot, um, but you know, not all at once, just slowly over time. So, yeah, an, an interesting topic. But you're right; it does transition well into the second topic here: the environment for U- U.S. businesses in Saudi Arabia. Recently, gentlemen, per a Bloomberg report in November, the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh criticized Saudi Arabia's tax authorities and warned that disputes with foreign companies risk discouraging investment in the country. "Quote: Numerous multinational enterprises operating in Saudi Arabia have experienced tax issues." exhibiting a lack of transparency, consistency, and due process compared to what they have come to expect from other nations, the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh said in a letter. Um, Bloomberg notes that overhauling the kingdom's legal system and taxation practices are key parts of of his plan, Crown uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, but the reforms have proved to be complicated. Um, Let's unpack this. Chris, uh, let me start with you. Um, how's the uh, business environment for U.S. businesses in Saudi Arabia now as we enter the new year? And is this a big deal, this this uh, this letter that was sent by the embassy? It is a big deal, and it does reflect a very widespread problem that I see every day for um, uh, all of my clients, American and otherwise, um, uh, that they do face um, a relatively, um, uh, what shall I say, emergent um, tax um, authority that doesn't um, um, 
arguably have the sophistication in understanding complex issues and the clarity and the transparency in communicating its policies. So I do find that clients are often blindsided by new rules about what's allowed as a business deduction, for example, that one keeps coming up. Um, and uh, there are many unpleasant surprises. And uh, so, um, you know, I have clients who have been um, uh, belatedly hit with reassessments that go back sometimes 10 years or more um, and um, that wipe out all of their profits for their whole history in the kingdom. And this is uh, very depressing for, uh, you know, for many. And, um, and on, on issues where I frankly think that the um, tax department is overreaching. And I'm beginning to wonder, you know, is there only a to administer the system fairly and, uh, and um, even-handedly, or is there a revenue enhancement um, agenda here that maybe is a carryover from days of big budget deficits and that, God willing, can be relaxed a little bit now that they're a little more flush in terms of oil revenues? And, um, and um, um, you know, but I am also, you know, and I do discuss this issue widely, and uh, uh, my sense is that the government is not really quite uh, prepared to take on board this criticism and that, you know, their attitude is we're getting plenty of foreign investment. And, um, you know, when we stop um, um, uh, welcoming big new companies to our market, you know, then we'll discuss this. Until then, please back off. It's the general attitude that I'm seeing. Hmm. Interesting. And I guess it is, uh, you know, one of the things they've tried to do with VAT and, and, and reduce subsidies and this sort of thing is to improve their non-oil income. And maybe this is, you know, as you say, maybe they're paying attention to that ledger more than the regulatory impediments that it's, it's, it's causing. Yeah, the big pool um, traditionally for foreign investment in Saudi Arabia, which has been huge, is cheap labor low taxes and subsidized utilities. In effect, all of those are going away. And so there's a new model. And I think it behooves Saudi Arabia, and thank God we have someone of the quality of Khalid Al-Fala and the main chair in this, uh, to uh, come up with a new formula and a new rationale for why Saudi Arabia is the place to be. And you know, part of it is that they are emerging as a big player in so many areas. We talked about uh, um, European football all, uh, but uh, you know, across the board, and tourism and uh, um, entertainment, um, um, you know, it's an exciting place. When I talk to my friends and clients in the news business, I learn that uh, stories about Saudi Arabia um, outpoll any other country in the world in terms of the demand of the consumer, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or Financial Times or the Economist. Saudi Arabia gets a disproportionate attention. Um, because uh, they are so uh, innovative and um, uh, sort of disruptively innovative in their approach to building their economy and leveraging their sovereign wealth to transform themselves. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, in many ways, um, um, just that, um, that great attention they're getting is one of the reasons why so many companies consider them as an investment destination. And, uh, there is so much money being spent now and you know big new parks and infrastructure and tourist destinations and new cities uh, you know this is something uh, people want to learn about and they want to play a role in so uh, you know i think they do have some big assets but sort of structurally they need to uh, repackage the um, um, the cell and the rationale for why 
companies should come in other than just the fact that the government's spending a lot of money. Right. Well, I, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir in the sense that, you know, Saudi Arabia is endlessly fascinating to me and always has been. And Chris, you've made a career and a life out there. And it's, uh, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's our very first episode of the 966, we talked about why Saudi Arabia matters, and we sort of went down a list of all these things where, you know, why Saudi Arabia, as opposed to Botswana or Ghana, you know, is constantly on the front pages of American and in global press. And, uh, you know, there, there are sort of structural reasons for it, but these past days is because there's, you know, in, in this recent period, it's just a whole bunch of exciting things going on that they're promoting well and, and announcing and pursuing. And, um, you know, they don't they don't lack for ambition, which is very exciting reading. Well, it's also a case study in uh, cultural and social transformation and economic transformation um, that's very compelling, you know, to come from being a very traditional and very um, constricted, um, um, religiously driven society where the Constitution was the Sharia, which developed a thousand years ago and more, um, uh, to becoming a um, uh, on the cutting edge of so many different um, uh, sectors, um, that's a real shift in identity, you know, and uh, you, you, you wonder, uh, are the people going to be whipsawed by this confusion of different models that all coexist and sort of unharmonized uh, 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 parallel with each other? Or um, So it's it's the, we, we who live in Riyadh and in Saudi Arabia have a sense that we're in the midst of history being made in a way that really can't be matched very easily in any other country. I, I, I try to think, you know, I was a third culture kid and I lived in the Middle East as a boy. And so that's one reason I ended up there uh, because it was so different and it was so challenging and so stimulating academically and professionally. And um, uh, so when Saudi Arabia began to uh, really make its, uh, its mark after the big increase of oil prices in the 70s. I went to Jeddah in 78 for the first time. It was a happening place. It was exciting. It was, uh, you know, uh, it was really doing unique things that uh, were unmatched anywhere. And one of my best friends at the time was a French lawyer, and he uh, made his career in Japan. And I visited him there, and he's visited me in Saudi Arabia. And we uh, have often commented to each other, if, uh, if I hadn't been... Uh, called to Saudi Arabia, Japan would have offered some of those same cultural diversity uh, opportunities and this transformation that uh, is so sort of stimulating in the personal level to watch it and to watch identities being shaped under your very eyes and people sort of straddling the fence between the modern and the traditional. Well, this is kind of interesting to be a part of. Yeah, I think that captures it really in a, in a, in a tremendously succinct and, and actually beautiful way. I always refer to Saudi Arabia as an experiment, uh, and not to belittle it, but because we don't know the outcome, and because there's so much going on um, that it's just fascinating to watch. But yeah, yours clearly was much more eloquent. <laughs> well, it's 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 so complicated because there's so many different um, 
um, uh, fields in which they're playing. They're playing the field of Islamic leadership. And, uh, you know, one of the few countries where the Sharia is still the supreme law of the land under the fundamental law of 1992. And, uh, uh, and yet uh, they've also adopted uh, the civil law system from France via Egypt. And they do now have a company's law and a labor law and uh, uh, negotiable instruments law. And that's expanding. They're now talking about um, intruding into areas that have been solely entrusted to Sharia, like civil procedure and evidence. They've now approved a new law of evidence. Well, this right. has always been left to the Sharia before. So there's a transition from things that were formerly Sharia prerogative to being part of uh, legislation from uh, from the cab uh, from the cabinet. Uh, and, um, you know, and then in the cultural area, um, uh, the traditional um, uh, dancing and camel racing uh, is now competing with uh, Formula One. And um, so they're uh, sort of living in multiple worlds in the sports and entertainment realm. And uh, so, you know, I, I foresee that the big um, interesting um, uh, area in play for the coming decade and more um, will be this identity issue. Who are we? You know, are we um, the, um, the, the, uh, the best exemplars of, uh, of Islamic um, faith um, and the leaders uh, of the Islamic world? Um, are we, um, uh, you know, one of the um, uh, G20 and uh, economic locomotives for the global economy? Um, you know, are we um, uh, um, the keystone of energy, um, as you say, not just in oil and gas, but in everything? Um, uh, there's so many different um, models out there that um, are all competing for prominence in terms of uh, defining who is, uh, you know, who is the modern Saudi Arabia and what is the modern Arab, what is, what is his role in the world? Does he continue to wear his traditional garb and speak only Arabic, which is the majority of the people, or uh, does he go the way of Dubai, where many of their young people speak only English and wear Western garb? One of the companies cited by this article is uh, Uber in Saudi Arabia, and they're yeah. being hit for, you know, tens of millions of dollars in taxes. They have had regulatory issues everywhere they go, um, every state they operate <laughs> here in, in the U.S. and around the world. So there's that. But, you know, I, I just kind of circling back and, and putting a bow on this thing. Um, you, you can't have this. You can't have the U.S. Embassy sending a letter and then having it getting published in Bloomberg, because if you're Googling Saudi Arabia as a potential new market for your company, what you're going to find is, okay, I've got to hire at least one Saudi to work in my company, and they may come and, and ding me for, you know, taxes for my entire time operating there. And uh, that might wipe out my entire profit. So I, I think they need, I think two things, I think they need to be seen as responsive to this letter and the complaints of these companies. Um, and then they also, um, like, like Chris said so well, they need to fix this. Um, they need to figure out a way to to not just rely on the opportunities of investing in Saudi Arabia, but you know, that you're going to get transparency, consistency, due process, like they mentioned. So, um, I just wanted to put a, just, just to add that in there. Um, just, cause it, it seems really important. And we'll get in the, in the yellow, you know, Saudi in a minute, we have a, a, a brief one on the new law. This law of evidence has passed. It's going to be followed by three more just apropos to nothing, but what you're talking about uh, clarity and consistency, there was a global study on corruption and what its impact on, uh, economic activity. This is around the world, and this hasn't, you know, this is not uh, specific to Saudi Arabia. This is just an economic activity in general in a in a corrupt 
environment. And the supposition was that it would be a significant hit in terms of your level of economic activity. And what they found was there are different levels of corruption. If the corruption was consistent, clarified, and widely agreed upon, uh, economic activity, level of economic economic was 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 much greater. The point being is just what you and you and Chris have been talking about. You know, the, the issue was is whatever it is, it needs to be clear, consistent, and you know, equitably applied in all ways, and, and that that'll help economic activity. But it, it's also interesting, Chris, when you you know you talk about that. Uh, how these things are still evolving and um, you know the the final book has not been written so uh, but on that let me let me let's move on to the next question Chris which I get to ask you and has to do with you know, your your law firm Johnson and Pump has an association with Al Sharif law and that you produce a, a, an email newsletter called Saudi business continuity updates I love to get this mm-hmm. in part because of what we're seeing right here is because you're bringing and not only your professional expertise to topics, but also your personal experience and it, your your perspective on these things, which I think is really valuable. Um, what I want, so, but anyway, your your recent issues, for example, you focus on Saudi commercial agency, Saudi regulatory compliance, these things. But I wanted to to prompt you that to, if you had to pick a best of or a top five among issues that you deal with most frequently in the Saudi business environment, you know, what would they be? Well, you know, compli- regulatory compliance is a big one because it's a new thing. They didn't really have these regulatory agencies until the um, around 2003, 2005. I think that's when the Capital Market Authority was launched and the, uh, um, the Tadawal, the Stock Exchange, and the uh, Competition Commission. So um, uh, these are relatively new uh, agencies. Um, uh, enforcing rules that didn't exist before then uh, that were sort of organically evolved in countries like the U.S. in response to specific circumstances. And uh, they do go out and try to borrow what they see as best practices from other countries. And they so if you look, for example, at the capital market uh, regulations, and that's sort of a special focus of mine, um, they could be um, pretty similar to what you'd see in the US or Europe. And um, uh, so on the face of it, you have um, a modern regulatory system, but it's been parachuted in from a country that has a whole different culture and a whole different economy. And and, and then you staff it with people uh, for whom this is a new thing. And uh, there are no uh, programs and competition law in the Saudi universities. And so uh, while on the face of it, it looks pretty familiar um, when you get in there and start uh, uh, answering questions from the inspectors who've been in your office and who have issues, um, uh, they don't always really uh, have a lot of background in how to interpret and enforce and apply these rules. So you end up with a lot of um, um, uh, a lot of surprises. Um, so I, I'd say that um, you know that whole issue of regulatory um, oversight um, uh, it's fraught with uh, potential problems and. Uh, you know, I think uh, the solution is, um, you know, they, they form these systems by looking at best practices elsewhere. They need to bring in best experts from el- elsewhere. You know, I think one, for example, they've had a real struggle to understand intellectual property like copyright, uh, software um, uh, ownership, patent protection 
protection. They need to bring in, um, you know, there are professional firms who can come in and um, who they can um, let loose to go in and enforce these rules and to go and uh, inspect companies to make sure they're using licensed software. And uh, so I think, um, uh, you know, not only is it appropriate to pick up some of the best regulatory practices from countries like the U.S. or Japan, but um, uh, they also want to bring in some experienced practitioners who can really show them how the interpretation and enforcement is done. But there's a lot of pride and the Saudi uh, government hires only Saudis uh, for the most part. And uh, they need to be a little more open-minded about that, like the, uh, um, the Emiratis or the Qataris have been, who have drawn on you know, deep wells of experience from countries like Egypt or Sudan, where some of these regulatory regimes have a little more history. And uh, um, you know, they, they were very smart when um, they uh, addressed a big concern of uh, foreign investors uh, about the unpredictability of the Sharia judicial system by setting up the Saudi Center for Commercial Arbitration and by engaging the U.S. Department of Commerce Commercial, de uh, commercial Development uh, 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 Service to come in and advise them on how to do it and develop a world-class um, uh, arbitration system. So that was a huge breakthrough, and they're now successfully handling many disputes. I put an SCCA arbitration clause in many of my new contracts, and some of those now that are being tested are um, you know, beginning to to show the world that Saudi Arabia um, um, uh, takes second place to no one in the region or internationally in terms of the quality of their dispute resolution. And this, this is an enormous uh, positive breakthrough. And you know, I'd like to see that not just in commercial disputes, but also in regulatory uh, activities um, in um, capital markets and competition law and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, um, the Saudi Food and Drug Authority, um, you know, they need to follow best practices, not only in paper, but also in reality. Exactly. Um, uh, Lucian, I, I was going to follow on with. Uh, Go ahead, please. Yeah. The, um, uh, Chris, you, you've been involved with and actually very active in two really important business associations, uh, the AmCham KSA and the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce, so MECAC. Uh, I know both of these are very dear to your heart. You've put in a lot of time and energy and your own money traveling here and there in support of, of MECAC and, and, and the door knock campaign. But also the AmCham uh, has gone through some really fascinating transformations of late. Can you tell us a little about the two organizations and, and why they matter and some of the key issues they're dealing with? Yeah, I've been involved in uh, in um, uh, the predecessor organizations of AmCham Saudi Arabia since uh, I first arrived in Jeddah in 1978, and they've done some wonderful things for in terms of providing a networking opportunity for American companies to come together and share their um, common interests and experiences and concerns. Uh, this is particularly critical in a place where there isn't a lot of information or transparency. And so, um, you know, you get secret um, uh, regulations that you can't track down that, uh, you know, are applied, but uh, not published. And, uh, you know, how do you keep up with that? You keep up with that with the uh, the Arab telephone uh, among American <laughs> companies to get together uh, and, um, you know, and, and share information. And who, uh, 
um, avail themselves of their constitutional right to uh, petition their uh, government for redress of grievances and uh, you know look to level the playing field between American companies vis-a-vis -vis their competitors from Asia and Europe uh, who for example don't aren't subject to uh, their um, home country taxation uh, you know US is the only country in the world that taxes based on uh, citizenship not residency and so uh, it's very expensive 30 or 40 percent more expensive to hire an American as opposed to a UK or an Australian national. Um, so these are issues that we um, raise on Capitol Hill. We did have a door knock uh, in September. Some of the people we met said we were the first face-to-face -face meeting they'd had in 18 months. So uh, that was kind of... <laughs> so they were glad to see you, even if they didn't support it. So, so that, that taxation issue of Americans abroad has been an issue for decades, Chris. Mm -hmm. I mean, is, is there any hope of it uh, being changed? I don't see it. You know, our, our focus now is to hold on to what we have and not lose the um, uh, the, the exemption. It's, it's now about one hundred and ten thousand uh, dollars. So if we can only maintain our current uh, status, I think uh, that's the best we can hope for in this current climate. Um, and um, um, so uh, so I'd, I'd say. Uh, um, yeah, I, you know, you know I, I, I'd say they're the most positive feedback we got generally was that I feared that there'd be some real negativity towards Saudi Arabia because of some of the human rights issues. But I really found a uh, bipartisan consensus that it's a country in which we have a strategic interest, that they're the best option we have in an otherwise um, a rough neighborhood, and uh, that uh, we need to stay the course in terms of uh, maintaining the relationship. And I felt this particularly in the wake of the debacle in Afghanistan, that uh, this is a region that remains um, critical to our national interest, and we need friends, and Saudi Arabia is the best option we have. Well, that's that's music to my ears because uh, you know this is a transitional period in terms of U.S. relationship with the Gulf and with Saudi in particular, and I'd really love to see some creative thinking coming out of Washington in terms of uh, uh, we uh, we have sort of the the, the framework uh, interests in terms of security, counterintelligence, energy, these sorts of things, but really like to see an understanding of what this Gulf region, GCC in particular, Saudi Arabia very much in particular, is trying to achieve in terms of its its the uh, growth of its economy and redirecting its economy, and that you know we can get this is a place where we can come in in a very positive way and and be helpful you know beyond the the traditional framework as i said of security energy uh and and oil and security energy and counterintelligence islamic world that sort of thing i haven't seen that yet although I, you know there's been some uh, uh some envoys have been out talking about this you probably hosted them at the uh, amcham you see everybody who comes to a Riyadh in, in the AmCham. So and maybe this is something that you have some optimism about or and have heard news of. Well, I'm, I'm very optimistic. And I have met, I did meet with the Deputy Assistant Secretary for um, the for for uh, the Gulf, um, and uh, you know what I heard was very encouraging. I think that um, uh, there's a widespread, you know, we, they do have strong human rights concerns, as do I. I'd like to see uh, reforms in the human rights area, and uh, 
Um, uh, but they also said, uh, you know, in terms of our basic perception of the uh, strategic importance of this relationship, nothing has changed. And so uh, uh, I, I was quite encouraged by that. And, um, um, and, you know, I think if you're a developing country, you basically have to make a choice. Are we going to be um, um, members in good standing of the international global system? Uh, or are we going to be spoilers? Are we going to be, you know, follow the route of Cuba or uh, Venezuela or Iran or North Korea? And, um, you know, there are a lot of those bad actors in our part of the world. Uh, but Saudi Arabia has unambiguously um, planted its flag on the side of being members in good standing of the major mm -hmm. international organizations mm -hmm. and playing a positive role in cooperating on issues like anti-corruption and, um, and uh, free trade and um, uh, national treatment for foreign investors. Uh, so, you know, what's not to like about that profile? I think that's a very compelling prospect in a region where we absolutely cannot do it alone. We've learned that the hard way. Um, so uh, I think the, uh, the logic of that uh, relationship uh, is too overpowering to ignore. And I think that any administration is going to end up after maybe um, um, uh, trying to think about and apply some of its campaign rhetoric uh, that uh, you cannot really do without um, a uh, ally of this or a partner of this uh, seriousness and this level of commitment that's so uh, irrevocably invested in being uh, good neighbors. Uh, you want to give Yella a shot? Let's do it. Yella. Uh, Saudi Arabia has in reintroduced mandatory wearing of face masks and maintaining social distancing indoors and outdoors effective from this past Thursday in a new move to curb the rapid increase in cases of COVID-19 variants. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, has um, uh, great powers to impose uh, policies that align with the um, science, that align with the um, uh, seriousness of the threat to uh, uh, its uh, residents' uh, health and well-being, and they responded quickly and uh, effectively in rolling out free vaccinations and testing, and uh, people responded obediently, as you do in an authoritarian uh, environment, and uh, they now have one of the best records in the world, and they have tremendous credibility and tremendous um, record of success in containing the spread of the COVID. Um, uh, uh, against that, um, uh, lockdowns and uh, video conferencing and, um, and uh, remote working are uniquely unsuited for the Arab world. This is not how business is done in Saudi Arabia. Uh, if you're not face-to-face -face and if you're not uh, upfront and personal, um, it counts for very little, you know, and so I... I uh, I, I say that uh, if a face-to-face -face encounter is 100 in terms of quality and potential for doing a deal and getting things solved, face-to-face um, -face with a mask is maybe a 50, and, um, uh, and uh, uh, video conferencing is maybe a, a, a 10, and uh, <laughs> telephones maybe a 2, and uh, emails maybe a 1. And so, uh, and, and, and so the restrictions that come with COVID concerns are absolutely killing for business, you know, and we 
push the envelope very fast and very far and trying to escape some of those restrictions and get back into the office and back to business as usual and back to meeting face to face with our clients. Um, because that's how business is done. You know, the, the Arabs have some uh, tremendous um, strengths. And one of them is that they're very good at reading people and they're very tuned into body language and uh, they can assess somebody's credibility, uh, uh, at least if you can see their eyes and their mouth. But if they're either behind a mask or uh, behind a video camera, you lose 90% plus of that. And so uh, um, it's discouraging that we're getting back to masking and, uh, and, and other restrictions, but uh, count on the Saudis to find a way to get around that quickly. <laughs> yeah, we, we, dis we discussed that in, a, in an earlier episode, how their, their governmental structure is just perfect for dealing with a pandemic because they make the rules and people follow the rules. And look what you have. I mean, before Omicron, you had 30 or 40 new cases a day out of, what, 28 million people? So... I, um, yeah, Chris, that's fascinating. I also think that, you know, this this uh, pandemic issue, we, we have to remember it. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman was named Crown Prince in June 2017. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of been a, a number of controversies and that sort of thing. This the handling of this pandemic has been uh, a really a, a major plus uh, in his uh governance ledger. I think it it's given a good deal of credibility to to exactly that, you know, good governance in a time of crisis. Lots of countries, lots of nations failed. Saudi Arabia has done a really good job. There's a, a concept that was developed by a German uh, po political theorist um, named uh, uh, Ernst Frankel, and it's the concept of the dual state, and it's uh, talked about in um, in this book, Kleptocracy, by the uh, journalist from The Guardian. And uh, so I've got that book, and I've been considering this. And the dual state was how he described um, what happened in Germany in the 30s, where you had a rule of law, and you had transparency, and you had accountability. Um, in the judicial system. And so they had a dynamic economy because people could uh, count on all these things for normal um, uh, activities in the business realm. Um, but at the same time, starting in 1933, you had an executive that could intervene at any time and suspend the operations of this normative state, which is the, uh, the, uh, the rule of law and transparency. And uh, and assert um, unfettered executive powers in the interest of the nation. And, um, uh, and so uh, they had what uh, Ernst Frankel calls jurisdiction over jurisdiction. They can decide when do we suspend jurisdiction and right. assert control. And so, you know, that happened on the corruption front in Operation Ritz-Carlton back in 2017. And it happened in the COVID experience that they suspended the uh, normal freedoms of the citizen for the sake of, uh, you know, saving lives and uh, coming through this crisis intact. And so that's an example in which the dual state has its uh, has its advantages. Hmm. Yeah, there, I, and there. This is. I mean, if you're I just to add to this, and I'm sorry to make this much longer, but it, it's interesting because if you're Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and you're looking at Omicron, and then you're looking at the fact that you might have seven percent GDP growth next year, you're like, hey, we got to get ahead of this thing uh, because um, this is going to be a big year for Saudi Arabia. So yeah. it, it's it's cool that they're so far ahead. Anyway, I'll I'll. 
I'll move on here. Um, a new law of evidence was just approved by the Council of Ministers. This is the first of four key judicial reform legislations that include a new civil status law, civil transaction law, and penal code for discretionary sentences. Thankfully, we have a lawyer on the on the podcast today. Um, uh, interesting stuff, Chris. Yeah, this is huge because um, 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 the uh, the legal been along with the educational system has been the key battlefield in terms of the confrontation of the traditional and the modern and um, and uh, the deal that was made when um, uh, um, you know after the uh, uh, when Fahad became king in what was in 1982 um, after the siege of Mecca the deal was that um, um, you know he was controversial he hadn't always uh, uh, been sufficiently scrupulous for the religious authorities in terms of enforcement of the Sharia. So he gave jurisdiction over the judicial system and the educational system to the Matalas, essentially, to the religious uh, authorities. And uh, so for the uh, executive to be reclaiming uh, territory in this domain is, is huge that, uh, you know, now, um, uh, and, you know, the, the judges, they're trained in seminaries, they're trained in Imam University in Riyadh and Umar Qura University in Mecca, and uh, they are very protective of their uh, prerogative to apply the Sharia. They believe the Sharia covers everything, uh, evidence, civil procedure, uh, contracts, you name it. And so for the executive to intrude in this uh, prerogative by setting out um, uh, rules that are partly based on best global practices. I'm sure they've also ensured that uh, no Sharia principles are violated. Uh, but this is, um, you know, uh, in terms of the longer term history of the Saudi judicial system, this is a huge shift in authority from the uh, from the religiously trained scholars to the executive. Uh, and um, it certainly, I think, will increase the um, um, the uh, the perception of the uh, justice system in the West that you have rules of evidence and you can uh, ensure you know the uh, Sharia system is very limited in terms of what's allowed in evidence you can't put on witnesses and uh, uh, there is no um, oral argument and um, uh, you know essentially it's trial by submission of documents and if you don't have a signed um, uh, uh, support for your position, you lose. And so, you know, the idea that, uh, um, you know, we can uh, uh, introduce oral testimony, this, this will be, uh, you know, uh, uh, earth shattering in its, uh, in its consequences. And, um, you know, I'd say that my experience over 43 years practicing law in Saudi Arabia is that the judges are generally pretty fair, but they're not very predictable. And there are some injustices that result from the very restricted view of what evidence is allowed to be presented. If you can't present oral testimony, sometimes uh, the wrong party um, prevails. And uh, so I'm hoping that this will be the beginning of something beautiful in terms of uh, adding some of the same benefits to the judicial system that we've seen in the arbitration system that we discussed earlier. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. That was terrific. Um, 
33, the real estate sector provided 40,000 job opportunities, job opportunities in 2021, increasing the private sector's participation to more than $103 billion, said Majid Al-Hogail, Minister of Municipal and Rural Affairs and Housing. Um, housing, you know, just like um, the political um, um, legitimacy of the government depends on finding jobs for Saudis, I'd say after jobs, the next most important thing is having decent housing for young families. Um, it's been so expensive, uh, you know, real estate prices have been you know, high uh, availability of mortgages has been low. Um, so uh, the fact that the government has taken this on as a priority, I think will do wonderful things, uh, not only for the quality of life of the Saudi youth, but uh, also for the uh, uh, legitimacy of the government in addressing the major concerns of society. So I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm delighted that they've taken this on so seriously and they have many programs that are all delivering um, very rapidly, they're high priorities. Uh, you know, I think you'll see more stories of this nature and, and thank God. Yeah, it's sort of a big year for the real estate. I mean, foreigners can now buy and own a house in Saudi Arabia. I mean, the white land tax is, is starting to earn it. it it's, uh, so this is sort of like a, a you know, a congratulations on 2021 sort of uh, news story, which is interesting. Um, yeah. So um, moving on, number four, Daria in Saudi Arabia has announced the first 14 of 38 hotels, 38 hotels, which will be opened in the coming years of the development northwest of Riyadh. Um, Daria, we've, we've talked about it on this podcast. Daria is so cool. If you visit Riyadh, you have to see it. It's, it's really awesome. Yeah, we represent some of these hotels and uh, we're very excited. The, uh, um, the progress is fast and the opportunities are enormous and the properties are going to be gorgeous. Um, I'm excited. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, being able to experience them myself uh, and our, our clients are enthusiastic. There's, you know, the best brands in the world, like Four Seasons is one. They're all coming in. Some of the, some of the brands coming are really impressive, Chris. You're right. Mm -hmm. Raffles Park Hyatt. I mean, just yeah, any number of things. And it is it is an amazing place what they're doing there. Uh, number five, American cinema giant AMC, which partners with Saudi Entertainment Ventures, was an early mover after cinemas were reopened in 2018. AMC has had hoped to open 20 cinemas by the end of 2020, but currently only run 10 cinemas with 65 screens. Well, I'm, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, like every other country in the world, they love Hollywood. They love American shows and they love American, the American concept of the theater. And I think it's fitting that American companies should be participating in this grand opening of one of the last holdouts against uh, this institution of the modern world. Uh, um, I think Saudis will avail themselves of this wonderful opportunity to go and see uh, on the, the, their shows on the big screen. I think they'll um, uh, want to make a mark themselves in uh, producing more films, and the government is you know, solidly behind that. Uh, um, you know, this is extremely um, revolutionary. You know, the Middle East has not been a laggard in terms of quality uh, programming uh, from Lebanon and Egypt, and both those 
countries are facing their problems, it's maybe Saudi Arabia's moment. And they uh, seem to have planted their flag in the sand to uh, stand out uh, in uh, being a site for filming of major productions, for producing their own um, high quality shows. There's some that you can see now on Netflix that are really quite um, mm -hmm. insightful and in showing you uh, what happens in the Saudi home. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I think um, uh, uh, the whole range of uh, economic and cultural opportunity, Saudi Arabia wants a part of it. And this is another example, in addition to the uh, uh, sports diplomacy and the tourist uh, um, opening up, um, this is another area in which Saudi Arabia wants to show a positive initiative to be a world leader and uh, to offer their people a piece of what modernity brings. And uh, God bless them for it. We cover a lot the cultural and, and uh, artistic strides that Saudi Arabia is making. And it is, it is stunning. It is really stunning. But specifically this AMC, I think it's interesting that, that both the Saudi brand movie and the Dubai-based Vox Cinemas both run roughly 150 screens each, which is more than double what AMC uh, has done. And Chris, it sort of you know returns to your your observation about how business is done. You know these these brands had relationships there. You know, so sort of the local guys who moved. You know, even though AMC was a big name and an early mover. The, the, the companies that have made real headway initially are locally uh, locally based and and that's that's a real advantage in that market well um, you know uh, things work differently in the Arab world and um, if you're not um, uh, planted there for some period of time it takes a while to learn the ropes and uh, um, you know things uh, in, is it, you know starting with uh, you know how you sell cars or um, how you market high uh, high luxury goods you know it, it's done differently you know uh, um, in I know this because I represent uh, Kingdom Center uh, they have the best brands in the world the uh, level of attention and the frequency of visits to the high end shops it's one of the highest in the world and if you don't understand that uh, and uh, if your brand doesn't accommodate that by um, you know a much more rapid uh, cycle of introduction of new products you miss the boat and this uh, these are things that you only know if you're inside the culture and so uh, you know i think um, american companies do very well where they bring a unique advantage but um, um, without the local touch uh, i think you're very vulnerable saudi police have arrested three people who destroyed a traffic monitoring device at uh, at umwa government government in the southwestern region of asir dozens of motorists have been criminally charged in the past for destroying Sahar cameras when the monitoring scheme was first introduced in saudi arabia in the past few years <laughs> if you were talking about something that saudi arabia has led the world in i think it's traffic cameras and billing people when they speed i mean richard when we were there i think in 2015 i was with my buddy and he got uh, uh he got he was speeding and he got a ticket from Sahar from a Sahar camera and unlike in the united states you get notified instantly via text when you speed and break the law and um it takes the money right out of your account so it just <laughs> ding you just you just you just had to uh just pay this um if it's 
if these Saher cameras are anything like the cameras around my old house in Washington, DC, they would last about three or four days before somebody comes through and, and hits them. But <laughs> this is something Saudis sort of unite around how much they dislike Saher because they love their cars and they love speeding. Well, you know, as you say, they are, they do lead the world uh, in their surveillance of uh, speeding and of, uh, and now it's being expanded to other areas like uh, signaling a lane change, which is revolutionary because no one does it. Right. Um, but they also lead the world in, uh, in, in uh, dis disregard for traffic rules and, um, and for uh, um, accidents and deaths on the highway. So, uh, you know, in my opinion, I think Sahar is a wonderful institution. I think they ought to invest in uh, uh, defensive measures to protect it from attack. And, uh, you know, I think the fact that people are upset about it, well, you know, you need to break a few rice bowls in order to uh, get people to behave decently on the road. And, uh, you know, if you can't police your roads and if people uh, take liberties with each other's lives, Lives through poor driving habits and unwillingness to uh, abide by prudential measures. Um, that's really, um, you know, that's a little like the broken window theory. If you mm -hmm. disregard mm -hmm. lawfulness in that sector, um, uh, you know, that's really a linchpin of society. If you can't trust people to respect your life and property on the road, where can you respect them? So I think, uh, you know, uh, again, three cheers to the authorities for standing their ground and uh, um, taking new measures to enforce traffic rules more broadly and, uh, you know, enter the ranks of, uh, of the success stories in the world in terms of uh, compliance with traffic rules. Mm -hmm. Number seven, uh, last in our yellow list uh, for this episode, uh, Saudi Arabia has delayed the launch of a major development strategy for the city of Riyadh up to 2030 uh, until next year due to some incomplete elements, quote unquote, the state news agency SPA reported on Tuesday. Yeah, Riyadh um, City is uh, going through some enormous facelifting and expansion, and they have these very ambitious plans to double the population. Um, and um, uh, there's huge construction uh, heading towards the north primarily, and uh, um, they have a Riyadh Boulevard that follows some old power line right of ways that's going to be a sports uh, venue for bicycling and all kinds of recreational activities. They have a, um, they're converting the old downtown airport to their central park that's going to be, I forget, eight times as big as New York's right. uh, uh, counterpart um, and uh, you know they're uh, they're just like they're delivering for their people on jobs and houses they're also uh, working very hard to deliver on quality of life in their cities which um, uh, they've been slow in rolling out some of the infrastructure projects like the metro and the um, and the King Abdullah financial district uh, but you know uh, we're seeing enormous progress uh, you know Olea Street where my office is is now uh, on the surface it's finished the uh, metro line is not uh, um, uh, activated yet um, but um, you know the quality of life in Riyadh is uh, is great it's a it's now recognizably sort of a a major um, metropolitan center. Uh, uh, they have uh, boulevards. I, I wouldn't say they're the equivalent of the Champs-Élysées, but they're a lot better than when I first arrived there uh, 
43 years ago, and uh, they're quite uh, um, appealing. I think Riyadh, uh, you know, I, and their ambition is to make it an attractive destination for major companies for establishing regional headquarters. And they've had a struggle to compete effectively with Dubai, which is so investor friendly and so expat friendly, but they're determined to do it. And uh, I can see evidence that it's happening. And, uh, you know, I hope that this delay is a uh, temporary glitch and that they get back to it with a passion because uh, it's very exciting to be experiencing these improvements in the quality of life. Yeah, I think I think the delay is just a you know a, a, a glitch. It's it'll come through. It's notable mostly because the, the Saudis have become so good at, at big announcements. But as you say, they're they're planning to spend two hundred twenty billion dollars to transform Riyadh by twenty thirty. I know they've recently put in their hat for the Expo twenty thirty, and but you know that's aside. And it's been interesting to watch, Chris. Uh, you know, Vision twenty thirty came in in twenty sixteen. Um, but of late, the um, real uptick in quality of life focus. You know, they I think they feel like it. It feels like they're they're coming into um, a number of these huge projects and initiatives that uh, addressed exactly that, like King Salman Park and updating the, the you know what it's like to live in an urban environment, and um, and it's so it's very exciting. And and the plans for Riyadh are are really ambitious. It, it, you know, doubling that population will be will be quite a project, uh, but it's it's nice to hear this person on the ground there every day. You're seeing real tangible changes. Yeah, Chris, you're, you're, you, when you get back to Riyadh in the next couple of days, it may look completely different than when you left, <laughs> so um, it's changing so quickly. Well, let's wrap it up. Um, this was awesome. Chris, thank you so much for joining us, um, and to all of our listeners, um, if uh, you hit the subscribe button, um, follow us wherever you can, wherever you get your podcast. It helps us a lot. Um, check out Chris's work. He does an absolutely awesome newsletter every week. It's it's terrific. Um, and yeah, again, Chris, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank Chris, you so much for having me. Wonderful, wonderful to connect with you again virtually, and uh, both as a friend and as your your insight is really really terrific to have. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure entirely. Thank you both. <laughs>